Hello, dear listener. My name is Nyla. I'm a postdoctoral student at McGill University, and it is my pleasure to take you through today's episode of A Minder. I have 10 new studies from February 2023 for you today, and these are all on non-pharmacological strategies for preventing or intervening in Alzheimer's disease. So I've got quite the range from virtual reality to spectral light flicker to acupuncture. We'll get started in just one moment. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Alright, so on the docket today, I have three papers on psychological interventions, two on physical activity, and five on neuromodulatory techniques, and I'll unpack what that means later on. Keep in mind that the summaries I'm providing today are based on abstracts of peer-reviewed articles appearing on PubMed. I'll provide the full references for you to follow up on the studies afterwards, and you'll find a bibliography in the episode notes to make it even easier. To start us off today, we have three papers reporting on psychological and behavioral interventions that aim to improve cognition or address other psychiatric symptoms related to Alzheimer's. Let's dive in with paper number one, which is by first author Giorgio Pulo and last author Nasios from University of Ionina in Greece, and the title is Computer-Based Cognitive Training versus Paper and Pencil Training for Language and Cognitive Deficits in Greek Patients with Mild Alzheimer's Disease, a Preliminary Study. This was published in Healthcare. In this study, the authors compared the effects of a computer-based and a paper-pencil cognitive training program, specifically on improving cognitive and language deficits in Greek people living with AD. They recruited 20 participants and assigned them to either the computer-based training program or the paper and pencil version, both of which entailed a one-hour session twice a week over 15 weeks. When they analyzed the difference between the baseline and endpoint performance on multiple cognitive tasks, they found that the paper and pen-based version improved deficits in delayed memory, verbal fluency, attention, processing speed, executive function, general cognitive ability, and activities of daily living. The computer-based program, on the other hand, improved deficits in delayed memory, working memory, naming and processing speed. And that's it. When the two groups were directly compared, the authors found that both had significant effects on the participants' cognition, but the pen and pencil method had an advantage in allowing participants to transfer the cognitive benefits to real-life activities. This does not negate the positive effects of the computer-based training, but it provides some food for thought when it comes to program delivery method. Speaking of delivery method, Paper 2 reports on a home-based program with the aim of reducing the need for patients and caregivers to access health and care services. The title is Implementing a Home-Based Personalized Cognitive Rehabilitation Intervention for People with Mild to Moderate Dementia. Great into practice. This is by first author Claire and last author Woods from the University of Exeter Medical School in Exeter, UK, 
as well as the Dementia Services Development Centre at the Bangor University in the UK. And this was published in BMC Geriatrics. This study builds on a previous randomized controlled trial on what the authors call the GREAT, so G-R-E-A-T, Cognitive Rehabilitation Intervention. Here they aim to develop a foundation for implementing this intervention in community-based services for people with mild to moderate dementia. This is a really crucial step, since many promising interventions are lost in translation when important factors for implementation are overlooked. To develop an implementation strategy, the authors consider key elements such as identifying and supporting managerial and clinical leadership, conducting collaborative planning and target setting, training and supporting practitioners, and providing external facilitation. They developed intervention plans and trained staff in 14 organizations, 11 of which they continued to work closely with over a 12-month period. Unfortunately, the implementation was disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, but six of the organizations were at least able to complete the first six months of intervention delivery. Check out the paper for details of the program's successes and a discussion of the organizational barriers that can impede implementation or limit the sustainability of a new program. Although improving cognition is often a major focus of psychological interventions for people living with Alzheimer's, psychiatric changes such as anxiety disorders can be just as debilitating. The authors of paper 3 aim to mitigate anxiety in their study entitled An Intervention on Anxiety Symptoms in Moderate Alzheimer's Disease Through Virtual Reality, a Feasibility Study and Lessons Learned. The first author is Sanchez Nieto, the last author is Nieto Escames, and this is from several universities in Spain and was published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. This is paper number three. The authors investigate whether displaying relaxing scenarios on an immersive virtual reality program can help against anxiety in people with moderate AD. The study included three participants who were assessed on numerous cognitive and neuropsychiatric tests before and after the intervention. In addition, the participants' heart rate, oxygen saturation, arterial pressure, and respiratory rate were recorded during the VR sessions. The intervention included three virtual scenarios from Nature Tracks VR, which were used over three weeks, totaling nine sessions. This led to a slight reduction in psychological anxiety on the Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scale and a small decrease in heart rate during the sessions. All participants considered the VR scenarios a satisfactory experience. These are very preliminary results given the small sample size and short intervention, but it's worth further exploring whether this could be an effective way to reduce anxiety and improve quality of life particularly in people who may not have easy access to nature. With that, let's move on to another potential prevention and intervention strategy, namely physical exercise. There's accumulating evidence that physical activity is neuroprotective through a number of cellular mechanisms and can mitigate cognitive decline or impairment. Today, we've got two papers on physical activity, the first one being an epidemiological study entitled Relationship between cognitive performance, physical activity, and sociodemographic slash individual characteristics among aging Americans. 
Paper four is published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Dola, the last author is Kara Bolitz, and this is from the University of Florida and the University of Texas Rio Grande, so both in the United States. If you've been following my episodes for a while, you'll know there's a lot of debate regarding the optimal physical activity intensity and type to improve cognitive health. The authors of this study chime in by evaluating the association between duration and intensity of physical activity with performance in various cognitive domains, and this is in 2,377 adults in their 60s and 70s. Note that this is an observational study, that is, the authors are working with previously collected data and not evaluating an intervention per se. Based on linear regression analyses, they found that participants with three to six hours a week of moderate intensity physical activity, lasting over an hour per session, scored significantly higher on cognitive tests assessing executive function and processing speed. That was compared to inactive peers. That said, adjusting for other variables reduced the significant association with delayed recall memory. The authors did not find a linear dose-response relationship between cognitive test scores and weekly moderate-intensity physical activity, but they were surprised to find that higher hand grip strength and higher late-life body mass index were associated with a higher cognitive performance across all cognitive domains. This finding suggests that beyond habitual physical activity, muscular strength and late-life adiposity could also play a role in cognition. If you would like more on potential protective and risk factors of AD, you can check out our monthly bibliography on epidemiological studies, or you can go back to some previous episodes I've hosted on that topic. So on the topic of muscular strength, Recent findings have suggested that people with Alzheimer's often exhibit a loss of muscle strength and mass. In fact, in previous episodes on epidemiological studies, I've discussed frailty as a risk factor for AD, which is in part measured by grip strength. The link between Alzheimer's, physical activity, and muscle strength is explored in paper number 5, entitled Resistance Training Restores Skeletal Muscle Atrophy, and satellite cell content in an animal model of Alzheimer's disease. This is coming from Lorestan University in Iran and the Central South University in China by first author Rahmati and last author Li, and it was published in Scientific Reports. So as you heard in the title, the authors evaluated the effects of resistance training on different measures of muscle strength in a rat model of AD. An Alzheimer's-like condition was induced in the rats by injecting amyloid beta-142 into the hippocampus, and these rats were compared to healthy rats. The total of 58 rats were further randomly divided into either a control or an exercise condition, the latter of which entailed 17 sessions of resistance training over five weeks. And while I'd like to imagine little rats lifting weights, I doubt this is how it went down but I'll let you check the paper for details on the training protocol. The authors found signs of muscular atrophy in the Alzheimer's disease rat model compared to the controls, including a reduction in myonuclear number and in satellite cell content in the gastronemius muscle. Resistance training increased the cross-sectional area of myosin-heavy chain fibers in both healthy and AD rats. 
The authors conclude that AD rats are more prone to muscular atrophy and that resistance training can restore the above-mentioned impairments. And that brings us to the halfway mark of our episode, which means it's time for a quick break before we move on to stimulation and other neuromodulatory techniques. And if you really do need a little break from all that listening, I have a request for you, dear listener. The Aminder team is currently looking for feedback on how we could serve our listenership better, and so we've developed a short survey to do just that. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to fill it out, and you'll find the link in the episode notes. I will take a sip of water and be back in a minute. I want to take a short break to convince you to join me and the editing team here at Aminder. We are responsible for the high quality, polished episodes you hear, and our team is looking to grow so that we can cover even more episodes in a month. If you're interested in learning the ropes, send us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. We do have other positions on our team if you're interested in those. I find it to be a rewarding auditory and visual challenge, and I love working behind the scenes to get the best out of our hosts. So if you want to feel like a superhero after editing out mistakes seamlessly, please reach out to me and to the Aminder team. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia, and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Let's start off the second half with a non-invasive brain stimulation technique you've likely heard of before, namely repeated transcranial magnetic stimulation, or RTMS. And if you've been following my episodes for a while, you probably know what RTMS is, but here's a quick refresher. RTMS is a research and therapeutic tool in which a large magnetic coil is placed over the skull, or over the scalp rather, to generate magnetic pulses and induce an electric field. Paper 6 adds to the growing literature on the potential clinical applications of RTMS with the study entitled Long-Term Neuromodulatory Effects of Repetitive Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation on Plasmatic Matrix Metalloproteinases Levels and Visuospatial Abilities in Mild Cognitive Impairment. That was a bit of a mouthful. This is by first author Cirillo and last author Trarsi at the University of Campania Luigi Van Vitelli in Italy, and it was published in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences. So as you heard in the title, this study focused on people with mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, and the authors investigated whether RTMS could slow or prevent the progression to Alzheimer's. Specifically, the authors tested the effects of bilateral RTMS over the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex on neuroinflammatory markers and cognitive performance. Nine participants with MCI received a 10 Hz RTMS stimulation, and another nine received a sham treatment, which means the coil was placed on their head but was not activated. The treatment took place daily over four weeks, and participants were monitored for six months afterwards. 
The authors report that the RTMS treatment decreased the levels of metalloproteases, or MMPs, 1, 9, and 10, and it increased the levels of MMP-related tissue inhibitors TIMP1 and TIMP2, or TIMP2. This neurobiological change was paralleled by better performance on visual-spatial tasks in the RTMS group compared to the control group. The findings add to our understanding of the mechanisms underlying the potential cognitive benefits of dorsolateral prefrontal cortex stimulation. Another non-invasive technique being explored is light stimulation, specifically at 40 Hz frequency to induce gamma oscillations. But as you can imagine, prolonged exposure to a flickering light can get really annoying and could also cause a safety concern. So the authors of paper 7 investigate whether a less consciously perceptible light flicker could do the trick. The title of paper 7 is Safety, Feasibility, and Potential Clinical Efficacy of 40 Hz Invisible Spectral Flicker versus Placebo in Patients with Mild to Moderate Alzheimer's Disease, a randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blinded pilot study. This is by first author Agar and last author Hug at Zeeland University Hospital in Denmark, as well as the University of Copenhagen, and it was published in Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. This was a randomized double-blind clinical trial, meaning that neither the researcher nor the participants knew who was in the placebo or the treatment group. The study occurred in two phases, first with five cognitively healthy participants and then with 11 patients with mild to moderate AD. The participants were randomly divided into either the active intervention group or the placebo intervention group. So the active intervention was a 40 hertz spectral light flicker. So that means that it was oscillating between two wavelengths that were both perceived as white light. And the placebo intervention was a color and intensity matched white light that was not flickering. The authors report that adherence to the treatment was over 86% of the intended treatment days, but you'll need to check the paper for details on the treatment duration. Participants stayed in front of the light for over 50 minutes and a maximum of one hour, with a direct gaze of over 35 minutes. There was some indication of improved cognition in the treatment group at week 6, and at week 12, the authors observed a difference in the hippocampal and ventricular volumes between the treatment and placebo participants. This study suggests that the light flicker causes no adherence or safety concerns, but its therapeutic efficacy will need to be investigated in a larger study. Speaking of neuroinflammation, there's another technique under investigation for its potential to reduce pro-inflammatory molecules and improve cognitive function and that is low-dose radiation. That's the topic of paper number 8, which is by first author Yu and last author Wu at the Olji University in the Republic of Korea. And the paper is entitled Multiple Low-Dose Radiation-Induced Neuronal Cysteine Transporter Expression and Oxidative Stress Are Rescued by N-Acetylcysteine in Neuronal SHSY5Y Cells. This was published in Neurotoxicology. This study takes us down to the cellular level and into the petri dish to determine the effects of radiation on SHSY5Y and C6 cells. I'm going to say shushi instead of SHSY5Y for the rest of this summary. The authors first exposed both cell types to high-dose radiation, 
finding that the shushi cells were more vulnerable. Multiple rounds of low-dose radiation increased pro-apoptotic molecules including P53, Bax, and cleaved caspase 3, and it decreased the anti-apoptotic molecule BCL2. It also generated free radicals in neuronal shushi cells. The authors go on to describe a rescue experiment with the anti-free radical agent N-acetylcysteine, but I invite you to check the paper for those details. The main finding is that both high and multiple low-dose radiation can induce reactive oxygen species that are harmful to cells, and that combining with N-acetylcysteine could be helpful in low-dose radiation therapy. We have two papers to go. Let's round off today's episode with the latest on acupuncture and electroacupuncture, that is, acupuncture combined with electrical stimulation. There is lots of research being done in animal models to determine some of the neural mechanisms underlying acupuncture and its potential therapeutic effects. Paper 9 is one such study, coming from first author Liu and last author Li from Hubei University of Chinese Medicine. The paper itself is in Chinese, published in a Chinese acupuncture research journal, but the abstract has been translated into English. The English title of paper 9 is Electroacupuncture Inhibits Neuron Injury of SAMP8 Mice by Reducing Inflammatory Response. This study was conducted in SAMP8 mice, which is an accelerated aging model. Twelve seven-month-old SAMP8 mice were randomly divided into the model or electroacupuncture group, and they were also compared to six SAMR1 mice, which is a normal aging control. For the treatment group, the electroacupuncture needles were applied to the Baihui, which is GV20, and the Shanshu BL23 points for 15 minutes in four sets of 10 days, separated by one day each time. The mice in the model and control groups were captured and fixed in the same way as the electroacupuncture group to account for the role of stress, but did not receive the treatment. The authors tested spatial learning and memory performance on the Morris water maze test. They used immunofluorescence and electron microscopy to assess the effects on neurons, and they used Western blot to probe different neuroinflammatory related proteins. The SAMP8 mice, so that is the model group, had poorer learning and memory performance, less hippocampal neurogenesis, and a higher expression of hippocampal IBA1, TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, and interleukin-1-beta than did the SAMR1 control mice. When compared to the control group, the SAMP8 mice that received electroacupuncture showed better performance in the Morris water maze, they had more newly born neurons, and decreased levels of those same inflammatory markers. The authors conclude that electroacupuncture at GV20 and BL23 could improve learning and memory in these mice by inhibiting the neuroinflammatory response and improving hippocampal neuronal health. That brings us to our last paper, number 10, which, as promised, is also on acupuncture, but this time without the electrical stimulation. First author Li and last author Wang from the Tianjin University of Traditional Chinese Medicine Take a look at gene expression changes, signaling pathways, and molecular targets of acupuncture in their study entitled Acupuncture Therapy on Dementia, explained with an integrated analysis on therapeutic targets and associated mechanisms. And this was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. 
The authors aim to identify the therapeutic targets and biological mechanisms of acupuncture therapy in treating dementia using an integrated analysis approach. What this means is that they examine the differentially expressed genes in Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia and the molecular targets of acupuncture to find which targets were associated with the biological response to these forms of dementia. They then did something called the Therapeutic Targets-Based Functional Enrichment Analysis to construct multiple potential networks, and they identified crucial targets using a weighted gene co-expression network analysis. As this is really not my area of expertise, I'll let you dig into the paper for details. 132 acupuncture therapeutic targets were associated with Alzheimer's, of which 58 were crucial targets. The authors identified six signaling pathways that were shared between Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia results, namely the neuroactive ligand receptor interaction, GABAergic synapse, calcium signaling pathway, CAMP signaling pathway, chemokine signaling pathway, and inflammatory mediator regulation of TRP channels. Overall, they conclude that acupuncture could be therapeutic in both Alzheimer's and vascular dementia, particularly by modulating synaptic function, immunity, inflammation, and apoptosis. And if you would like to learn more about these disease mechanisms, as well as pharmacological approaches to targeting them, we have quite a few episodes out on those topics. And there's one coming up in just a few days on vascular changes related to Alzheimer's. And that brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you for listening today. I hope you found it useful and accessible and that you've learned something new. We've got four more episodes coming out for the February series, as well as the bibliographies for the research that we couldn't cover. While you're waiting for those new episodes to drop, I remind you to fill out the quick survey if you haven't already. And as usual, we invite you to connect with us directly on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. You can also leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcast, iTunes, and Spotify, and share the podcast with anyone you think could benefit from it. Before I sign off, I want to mention that Aminder is actively recruiting at the moment, particularly for episode hosts. If you would like experience in podcasting, literature review, and science communication, email us at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. To close, a shout out to everyone who worked hard to make this episode happen. Firstly, Anusha Kamesh for reviewing my script as well as the audio recording and for providing the theme song, Journey of a Neurotransmitter. You can check out her tunes on SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh or YouTube under AK Music. And thanks to Scott for editing the audio of today's episode and to Saladin for preparing the attached bibliography. As usual, a huge shout out to the sorting and management teams for all the behind the scenes work required to keep a minder running. And with that, I wish you a wonderful day wherever it may take you next. <laughs>